0: I'm Alex Shaw
1: I'm Sharon Shaw And And welcome welcome to
0: to School of Movies Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey
2: I have a feeling we're about to embark upon a most unprecedented expedition Once they made history I must see to it that you
0: die Now they are history Bill
2: and Ted are dead Welcome to Hell. It's the Grim Reaper, dude. How's it hanging, Death? But they're having one hell of a time. This is not what I expected this place to look like at all. We got totally lied to by our album covers, man. Taking in the sights. Not bad, dude. We totally knew a guy got one of those in his bucket of chicken. Making new friends. Excuse us, dude. But is there any way we can get back? You may challenge
3: me to a contest. J7. You have sunk my battleship.
2: Excellent!
3: Best two out of three.
2: What?
4: Enjoying the family? No way! Invading the present.
2: I totally possess my dad.
0: Battling (laughs) the future.
2: You metal, dude! Excuse us, but your shoes are (laughs) untied. I smell the death! And
4: meeting their maker.
2: Guy, congratulations on Earth! Not to mention your other great planets Mars, Jupiter, Uranus. It's the comeback of all time. Bill and
4: Ted's bogus journey. It's a trip.
2: Best of seven? Damn right! Ah! Oh, dude! Left hand red. Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey.
0: We continue our temporal and metaphysical travels with these two Californian musicians. And this week, from the Recorded Tomorrow podcast, we have two new voices. First off, we've got Jesse Ferguson returning. Hello, Jesse. Hello, hello. We also have, for the first time, Rachel Schenk.
2: Hello. Hello.
0: And he's insisted that I call him this Psyduck Enthusiast, Scott Thomas. Thank you so much. It is on my business card. He's got a Psyduck behind him. We've, we've got the cameras on this time around, and we can see the little guy just going, "sigh" in the background there, <laughs> sending Aww, us messages. Aww. Send us his PIN number. And it seems like not many people love this poor, kicked-around, rushed, and, by the words of the creators, kind of bungled second film. But everybody on board tonight specifically requested to be on so we're going to give you a great show and maybe find some of the reasons it has a cult following it's also possible that in light of the third film some folks especially newcomers to the series might be more forgiving on bogus journey This movie was released in July 1991 after being made fairly swiftly following the box office success, yet apparently in the day critical pounding that the first film received at the beginning of 1989. And at the time, the studio had dollar signs in their eyes and they wanted to turn this thing into a franchise. They wanted Happy Meals and toys, and they got the customary two things that 80s properties spawned at this time of low-quality multimedia capitalization. They got an ill-judged shitty cartoon in 1990, surprisingly (laughs) voiced by Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter and an ill-judged, swiftly cancelled, now-forgotten live-action TV show starring not Kiana Reeves and Alex Winter. The latter came out in 1992, actually, after this second film, but it was bad enough, and the responses to Bogus Journey were rejecting enough that it pretty much killed the story until 2020, the year that everything else, ironically, went on hold. <laughs> So one thing we didn't really talk about last week was George Carlin as Rufus and he's really not in either of these first two films in any way that that, that feels like he's there on screen and is a constant pervasive presence. But because of just the short work he's able to like be there and sort of set everything up in this kind of avuncular but wise ass way, he feels like a, a presence, like a third person in their dynamic even though he is absent throughout, which kind of is beautiful in as Carlin has been gone for a long time, but it felt like he was sort of there in spirit mm-hmm. in uh, the third film.
1: Well, his, his mentor role has kind of been stepped up in this by virtue of the fact that the, the intro that we get mm. and the slightly tweaked version of the future that we get to see this time mm. is,
0: it's always different every time
1: it's always slightly different mm-hmm. usually it's the aesthetic is the main thing mm. that changes and everybody <laughs> in this appears to be dressed in silly string mm. um, i was gonna
4: say they look like they're in lazy town <laughs> yeah
1: neon <Yeah. laughs> yeah. silly string at that um but uh, but the focus in this one is on some sort of educational establishment mm. and rufus mm-hmm. is introduced as a teacher college yeah. professor of some kind
4: right and, also, uh, props to anybody who can like memorize and use and say the word statiophonic, oxygenetic ampligrapha verberator" <laughs> with a straight face. And we all know where we'd <laughs> be without that. <laughs> but so, so yeah. Ultimately, what what Carlin brought to the role
0: was a certain kind of grounded uh, charm, uh, which mm. I think was like, was really important, even for, even for just this this. Effectively, he's in in a hero's journey context, he's kind of like the Herald rather than the Sage. They're not mm. learning that mm-hmm. much from him, although he does uh, you know, teach them to to start thinking fourth dimensionally. But as you said, they can understand time travel pretty well. Uh, so they don't learn that much from Rufus, but he's definitely there to sort of s- get things started. And from the sounds of it, Carlin would have been well up for doing more Rufus-related stuff in this second one. They just didn't really have anything specific for him to do. And it really mm. comes down to the fact that if you have him along for the ride too much, you've got a mentor with too much of an overview mm. who's going to oversteer.
1: I think there, there was the risk that if uh, Rufus had been around too much, there would have been too much temptation mm. to have him over-explained Anomalous. Yeah. Mm.
5: Yeah.
0: And yeah. Anomalous it- comes off as a very simple puzzle that we solve in a few seconds. Yeah.
5: Mm. Yeah, right. and, and I think Rufus' presence I- in this too much would ruin the entire ethos of Bill and Ted, mm-hmm. that they're just two lovable goofs who fail into greatness. Yeah. You know, if Rufus is there to keep them from failing, to keep them from falling, to keep them from uh, picking battleship, you know, <laughs> then, uh, then I think it, it, it would, in fact, alter the entire pattern of what makes a Bill and Ted film a Bill and Ted film.
3: Mm. Well, And to build off of that, actually, I think that one of the other constants in this movie is the more time you spend with someone, the more you get to see what makes them human, Mm. theoretically. And we do Mm -hmm. that with so many individuals in this movie who are notable, famous, and then we subvert the image that's been built up around them. And in this film, it's primarily death. And so it Mm -hmm. sort of makes its own weird kind of sense that if you need the feeling of a person, either the threat of them or uh, the goal of getting back to them, hanging over the movie. We can't get too much time with them, which is even where we get like kind of Joss Ackland in this broad stroke Hmm. as the bad guy. And, And to me, it's like the other side of the coin of Carlin where I wish he would have more to do. But the second he shows up on screen, I know it means business because yeah, mm-hmm. he was we was what like four years off of winning a BAFTA mm. like coming into this. Like he's an award-winning actor. He's incredible.
4: To and- your point, Scott, the more about like the more time you spend with somebody, the more human you you see them. Like Rufus and you know, George Carlin via Rufus is in these movies the epitome of cool. Like Everything like he is the definition of cool. He is the example by which everyone else sort of strives to be. And if we can take it back to the animated series for just a second, he's in like five to ten minutes of every episode of the animated series or at least every episode that I've watched. Mm. And it is exactly that one. He comes off as a kind of a buffoon because he gets into as much trouble as Bill and Ted do oh. and just uses time travel to instantly get his way out of it. But he also, you, you see that he's kind of in the background pulling a bunch of strings that we don't notice. And it sort of, it kind of de-emphasizes or, or, or lessens Bill and Ted's accomplishments uh, shallow though they may be for the animated series, They're still there, but then you see back behind, like, oh, it was actually Rufus that, Mm -hmm. like, made sure that those things happened. And, yeah, I think they were wise in sidestepping that and kind of avoiding that pitfall by just not having him in it very much. Also, they spend about half the movie dead, so. Yeah, you'd have to (laughs) kill Rufus as well.
5: Yeah, Rufus would also have to beef it, you know? Yeah.
0: Also, Mm -hmm. to to your point, Rachel, it would be like Frodo and Sam journeying into Mordor, but with Gandalf along for the ride. Yeah, Gandalf's just
5: like there as well. It's just like, okay, I (sighs) guess I'm not worried about any stakes or Mm
0: -hmm. yeah, because Gandalf's keeping them safe. Yeah. Like, uh, while he's there, the fellowship are gonna do all right. The moment he yeah. falls, you're like, Oh god, they might oh, actually no. all start being trouble. picked off. Yeah, versus
5: right. versus Gandalf like carrying both the hobbits in like a front and back baby bjorn.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <it's> <laughs>
5: Having a lark, you know. Oh my God, that's literally
0: what Treebeard does with Merry and Pippin. That was it. She's (laughs) like, "Now you hobbits, come here!" And like the emphasised point at that stage is that Merry and Pippin feel powerless Mm. to affect anything, and like our Mm -hmm. friends are in trouble, we need to help, and they're being ferried around.
1: really interact yeah. with anything that's going on in the world.
0: So, yeah, that would be Bill and Ted if they were being ferried from one place to the other mm-hmm. by people trying to manipulate them from the future. So and
1: then the tone becomes mm-hmm. the future is going to happen. You guys just try not to fuck yeah. it up too much.
0: Yeah, we're, we're going to yeah. steer you into into doing what we need you to do. That's Donnie Darko again. <laughs> said that last week This was the cinematic debut of director Peter Hewitt uh, Who went on to direct Tom and Huck The Borrowers, the one with John Goodman Thunderpants, Thunderbirds And most recently, Mostly Ghostly Have You Met My Ghoul Friend Now Peter Hewitt also, the one other thing that I'm like Oh that's kind of remarkable in an odd sort of weird way Uh, He directed a TV movie with Keira Knightley called Princess of Thieves which is a what if Robin Hood had a daughter like Disney? I think movie. I saw that. And whenever you Google the Princess Thieves on or, or, or look for the uh, for it on Amazon, Princess of Thieves comes up pretty much every time. So weirdly, I my work is tied to the body of work of Peter Hewitt.
4: So <laughs> Scott and Rachel to fill you in, uh, the Princess Thieves is the name of a novel that. Alex wrote, Mm -hmm. an audio drama that he cast and everything, and it's great, and you should check it out.
5: Oh, I will. Thank you.
4: Gwen glanced down at Robin, whom, it transpired, was barefoot and awkwardly hopping across the terrain. Excuse me. I
0: thought I was being rather nimble. It wasn't nimble. It was lurching like a drunken monkey. Where are your boots? Back in the hut. We left in rather a hurry. Ow. Ow. Oh, that was sharp. Ow.
1: Why are they back at the hut?
0: I was sleeping. That's what people do at night. You were screaming. I came running. Excuse me, princess. Your feet are all wrong. You should have hooves. Even you wear shoes.
1: Who are you talking to? The
0: nag he's narrating this bit.
1: I know. I was just trying to be professional and stay in character.
0: I just want a little generosity of description. I've been losing my impact as a hero in recent chapters. I was hoping to win a little bit back here. Actually, the shoeless thing is pretty noteworthy. It's only been done really effectively twice, Die Hard and Children of Men. Plus, it shows your vulnerability. Being a hero isn't always about being super tough, you know. You
1: do realize you're diminishing the threat level here, both of you? This
5: isn't at all how we did things at RADA.
0: Come on, throw me a bone, you petulant glue factory. Fine. Robin was jumping with unparalleled, cat-like nimbleness across the terrain.
1: (laughs) Oh, we're back on. You want to go back and get your boots?
0: No, too many of them back there. That's The Princess Thieves, available on Bandcamp, back to Bill and Ted's bogus journey. The writers, Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon, like I said, came back. And the original plan with this was going to be that they were... they like It was a second report that they had to do, and it was going to be English class. And uh, the idea was they were going to go into various books. So maybe they kind of pinched that for the comic book idea for the shitty TV yeah. series. Yeah. And they were going to bring out fictional characters... Um, uh, and, and sort of bring them into the class to show them off, and, and obviously Chris and Ed worked out. Oh, that's literally the same film again. And then it was going to be that they brought out religious figures like Noah and Moses and Adam and Eve, and they were like, it's still too close. Let's let's work it out. And the studio was pressing pressuring them to uh, get it done and there was like there was a lot of sort of cutthroat movie exec stuff going on where it was like right can you guys have a uh, script with us in the next few weeks and they were like we're not sure oh we'll get someone else then uh, wait 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 hold on hold on we'll, we'll see what we can do and if you listen to the commentary from these guys on uh, the on *Bogus Journey*, we've got the German Blu-ray to watch this on. That's how beloved this film isn't in the UK. Um, they they're really quite down on this movie. They hadn't seen it until. Uh, 2014, when they perf- performed that commentary, the, they, they had watched the film once back in 1991 and then not seen wow. it and just lived in what they considered shame. And they spent the whole time going, oh, this is better than I remember. But as soon as we hit <laughs> station, the whole thing takes a nosedive. And then the moment they hit station, they were just hypercritical of their own work. And they were owning mm. the problem all the time. They were like, this is our fault. Like, we were short on time, but like, they changed the ending repeatedly, as we'll get to that um, later on. But uh, they... They kind of had the idea of Bill and Ted go to hell, and then they built the whole film around that principle. Right, let's do the afterlife instead, and uh, it has darker themes. It's weird to imagine them coming out of the '80s, which itself was kind of a dark, sort of noir, cyber, neon, noirish sort of um, sci-fi realm, and going into the 90s, which was plush and cuddly and baby-proofed with all the corners rounded off, and Bill and Ted mm-hmm. go in the opposite direction and have a much darker adventure. They, they said a lot of uh, fans of the original watched this in the cinema and, and immediately rejected it because we kill our characters in the first act, and that's an unusual thing to do. There's so many things about the hell... Of this film that Mm -hmm. I actually
3: find very, very frightening. And I know I said off mic before we started recording, this is not a movie that lived large in my memory. Mm. I think I saw it passingly once as a child. And one of the reasons I was excited to podcast about it was to go, oh, yeah, what? What is that? What does actually remain of that movie besides it's the second big Bill and Ted film? And Mm -hmm. given that these movies are about characters learning to be excellent to one another and try to make the world a better place, that the idea that hell is not only somewhere they can arrive at, but that there's still something to pick apart in their psyche from the remnant of their life is really a terrifying idea because it isn't a morality play. In this instance, it's really not about if they've been good, if they've been bad. It's about the fact that they've wound up there regardless and their nightmare takes both of them back to something that happened in their youth. to like an essential moment before the kind of life directives are even in play in Mm -hmm. a way that are set. And that is... Visceral. That's like a visceral thing for a early '90s PG family film.
0: They got David Snyder in uh, to do the set design, and uh, he was the set designer for Blade Runner. And we've actually talked about him just a couple of weeks ago. He did the Super Mario Brothers film, which we covered just now. (laughs) And it's it. I can trace a straight line between Super Mario Brothers with its goofball. Sets, but at the same time, like, uh, pervading darkness in an otherwise light, uh, pr- you know, already existing property. And the great big neon shoes <laughs> at the beginning of this film. Like, I could see how you'd go from there to there. And, and it had elements about it, which I, I feel like people in the 90s, as they hit these, you know, reconfigured... Like, a lot of people don't like Back to the Future 3. Like, there was a certain kind of realizing that things were going to be sequeled and things were going to be coming back, but they'd be different to how you remembered them that a lot mm-hmm. of 90s kids, myself included, because I'd have been 11 when this came out, rejected. I actually liked Bill and Ted's bogus journey when I was a kid, and I still do. Uh, but I, I know a lot of people who are like, uh, you know, from that point on, whenever I met them, they would say, well, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is a great film, and the second one sucks. And uh, from the, what Alex <laughs> Winter said on the uh, comment on his separate commentary... Uh, Most fans of the series sort of fall into two camps, which is um, up until that stage, at least when there were only two films. Those who love both films equally and those who really don't like the second film. Pretty much everyone likes the first (laughs) film. So now I'm guessing with a third film out, there'll be a bit more context to seeing the whole overall picture. Obviously, we'll talk about that next week in terms of how Mm -hmm. deep and far reaching it goes. Mm -hmm. But this this is kind of a pariah. Uh, of the uh, of the series. And it will always be considered, I suppose, the Star Trek into darkness of Bill and Ted <laughs> films.
2: Especially right. Because I, I who-
5: watched this as an adult. Like, I didn't watch Excellent Adventure or Bogus Journey as a kid. Like, And sort of seeing these not through the lens of a child, but through the lens of somebody who does like to watch and critique media, mm. I find it so fascinating that this second film is such a wild shift from the first. Mm. It's not a, we're going to do it again, but more. It's, we're going to do something utterly bananas gone so different than the last one mm. and see what happens. And of course Bill and Ted become buds with death because that's what they do. They're <laughs> just being excellent to death. And I think that is so valuable <laughs> as Even a message. If they
4: melvin him first.
5: Yeah. But you know, like that was a desperate death time and a death till you, desperate until you get to till you get to right. know him and then he's a mm. pretty chill he's a pretty chill guy.
0: If I, I particularly, I like the fact that we've seen in the past few days as well, Home Alone 1 and Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Home Alone 2, <sighs> Lost in New York, is exactly what would have happened if they had just retrodden the same ground in the second Bill & Ted film. Yeah. I have never seen a film so slavishly replicate everything that was in the very successful original, in a kind of, we know you like this last year, have it again. I even <laughs> Scream 2. Went above and beyond in comparison to this thing mm-hmm. of just repackaging something you'd already seen in a slightly different setting. I
2: What is your mission? First, totally kill Bill and Ted. Yeah. Then we take over their lives. He's totally a robot. So are you, dude. What were total is. Destroy that ridiculous, insipid man.
0: So Joss Ackland as Chuck DeNomalus, or if you actually look cl- closely at the novel of um, you know, his vision of the future, he's called Nomalus DeNomalus. And uh, he was simply, <laughs> what was it? It's the, uh, the other, the Ed Solomon. The
4: greatest
0: man in history. Solomon written backwards. It's like, oh, hang I like it. See what you did there. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, one thing that's weirdly comforting about this is that he's obviously a fascist and he really disapproves of the future, which by its contrast suggests that is a very, li- well, free and somewhat chaotic future with uh, I'm guessing as as Sharon said last week empathy and the opposite right. of fascism so if him but- wanted to take over is a good sign because it suggests that the future is the opposite of that
2: yeah, yeah.
4: yeah. let's call it a progressive
0: future
2: yeah yeah
0: absolutely yeah. Uh, and uh, he's uh, played by Joss Ackland, who really was not liking this film. Like, he not only didn't like the film, he didn't like Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves. That when he's like, "I hate them, I hate the robot versions of them." Like he was, he he wanted to spit in their faces. Uh, and he, he wasn't on board with the film. I think by the end, because they'd written extra stuff for Chuck to do he kind of got a little bit more on board uh, uh, with them. But, like, he didn't. Like, they went over to him uh, on set, like, hey, how's it going? And he was like, you know, not going to shake your hand. And it was like, it could have just been method acting, or he could just have been not happy. <laughs>
2: wow. But
0: uh, it's notable that uh, the uh, movie got the villain from Lethal Weapon as well as the villain from Die Hard 2, all in the same yeah. game <laughs> But yeah, effectively, he actually spent a lot more time interacting with robot Bill and Ted, who, Mm -hmm. uh, again, the the writers speculated from watching it it, and from memories of the set, it seemed like Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves were having a lot more fun being villainous versions of themselves (laughs) than just being Bill and Ted, who this time seem a bit more... We said that they never really get downcast last week... ...but this is probably the moment when they feel the most... ...why aren't we good? Why isn't it happening?
1: Uh, And I do think that's that's on purpose... ...and the presence of the robot versions of them... ...is really quite significant to this, for me at least. So they are, at the beginning of the movie... ...it's not so much that they're starting to lose hope... ...but they are starting to wonder about... ...why this wild stallion's future that they have been assured... ...is going to come about is not materialising... They're not entirely sure what they have to do to get it to that point. Until now, it's all gone on faith. Mm. And even if they did know, it it's there's an even bigger question mark over whether or not they'd be able to do it without some mm. significant help and support.
0: I mean, the end mm. of the first one plays like a gag. It's mm. like, you know, now that now they're going to rock out. And they play horribly. And it's like, they, they do get better. That's, that's the gag. That's the gag. Well, exactly. And they, the, the way it works, I suppose, for this uh, second film, they couldn't start it... Being really good at what they do because no. then we wouldn't understand. Because well, you
1: wouldn't have a film, you'd just jump straight to the end.
0: People's understanding of the way the system works is if you're talented, you're gonna get picked up. Mm. I've got a few things to say about that, but, uh, but I'm, I'll save them for uh, another rant. But um, yeah, look, yeah,
1: we we have to. It wouldn't make any sense water. if Bill
0: and Ted were obviously really talented from the get-go, yeah. And it was like we just can't get a break. Indeed. I guess we'll keep serving pretzels. But
1: think about what we said about them last time—that they are uh, the the epitome of the lovable grungy, down-home guys Hmm. who are, um, for some reason very empathetic and relaxed and chilled out about everything and just embracing of experiences that happen to them and everything that happens they just go with. They go with the flow and they they seem to get taken along a path where things work out for them. They're now at a point where it feels to them like things aren't going to work out for them. They didn't know at the beginning of Excellent Adventure that there was the potential for things not to work out for them. They weren't aware of this wonderful future where everybody thought, they were amazing so they didn't know that that future could not happen but now they do now they have this sort of awareness of the good that they might not hit and they're not sure why and i actually feel like the if you if you look at Denomulus as being like the complete opposite of what the progressive future that's been outlined is the robot versions that he has created are are like the versions of Bill and Ted if they take a really sharp right turn at this stage and disappointment and feeling like they're not up to, up to the job could easily take them down that route and they could end mm-hmm. up being like the robot versions of them which even their creator can't stand, tellingly.
3: Mm. Mm. I love mm. that. It it makes me think of two things, like one for my own life and one actually about the movie and the one for my own life. I was having a conversation with some other actors the other day and we were talking about times when you've been on sets that, you know, are magical and sort of a high point in your career and that the experiences of touching the extraordinary and knowing that you belong in that and then having to return and go, Okay, well, when and sort of playing off that theme that you said, of they know it's meant to be coming, it's promised this 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 future that they've shaped. But then why does it feel so ordinary? Why does it feel like we're in the sort of muck that had preceded this incredible journey that we went on? And then actually, it reminds me of the frustration that Ed and Chris and everybody might have felt trying to put this thing together because it's the idea of like you're supposed to catch lightning in a bottle again, but we already did it once. We've already gone on this journey. Now here we are, and we're trying to just like eke our way through, mm. and that that in and of itself is is very difficult. Like the frustration of, of trying to get there seems to mirror some of the frustration of putting this together again and finding this movie. Mm. Um, it feels very real to me. In yeah,
1: and moment. the whole the whole point of the the lightning in a bottle scenario is that there is a degree of it happens by chance.
0: You can't
1: mm-hmm. make chance happen again.
0: Exactly. One thing that's really sweet uh, uh, that I actually um, enjoyed about this film, even way back when I first saw it, is their attitude to uh, uh, Elizabeth and Joanna, who are, uh, let's face it, kind of infantilized and, and, and turned into damsels in distress uh, throughout the first two films. And like, at the end, they're just kidnapped and tied up because mm. th- th- there's nothing for them to do mm. at this point. They're just bargaining yeah. chips yeah. to be imperiled, for, so the boys can save them.
1: I also have in my notes uh, Joanna and Elizabeth, and the trope of the competent female support role. Yeah. Oh
5: yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like the fact the fact that they they got good at instruments and mm. the boys didn't is mm-hmm. is very interesting as a choice. You know, mm. like it, it's almost like that privilege of being told that you're destined for greatness and then just believing it so much that you don't realize that you have to put the work in. And then Elizabeth and Joanna are going, well, I guess we have to learn instruments if we're going to do this thing. So let's Hmm. do that. You know, it's, it's, a movie version of that of that meme of Beyoncé and like that rose colored ball gown standing next to Ed Shear and <laughs> he's just in a grubby t-shirt and some shorts or something. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's just like, here's, the, here's the difference in effort when when a woman goes to work and when a man goes to work, Absolutely. you know. Or the secretary that's running the business while the boss is exactly. off doing
1: something very showy but not actually productive. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, But actually, going back to uh, Joss Ackland briefly, and I'm going to come back to the babes in a second, uh, he's trying to effectively change time, uh, which, uh, you know, I said in almost a throwaway uh, way after Jesse had explained and re-explained the time travel last week, uh, that Chuck DeNumulus was pretty much destined to fail, that the timeline Mm -hmm. is pretty much set in terms of everything that has happened and is going to happen has done so and will do so, which means that he's kind of trying... Like he's fighting an impossible war you know, on mm-hmm. this front. Like They were always going to beat him, which mm-hmm. obviously must make him feel even more powerless in a, in a state where he feels powerless in the face of the chaotic future he lives in. You know?
1: Nobody wears mm-hmm. boots like that unless they feel powerless yeah. and they're trying to <laughs> <Right>. overcome
0: <laughs> that fact. And I understand it. I have no sympathies for him. He's a colossal prick and a fascist. But yeah. uh, it, it, it does feel like... Well, you were never going to win, and and yet you still did this. Mm. And also, you don't understand time travel yeah, in in, right. in, in exactly. a, the way that it's worked.
1: He's the antithesis of them in another way. Then mm. he's fighting against a future that is is destined, instead of just going with the flow. Mm.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh, they actually call that out explicitly in uh, Denomalous's first encounter with Rufus when he invades the classroom. Mm. Uh, he's like, he, he's got Rufus at gunpoint and Rufus says, you won't get away with this and Don Amalo says, time will tell and Rufus is like, time, time has told, told. so he, his
0: word should be, you didn't get away with this right, exactly nice uh, but yeah, uh, the, the the two babes, uh, uh, Elizabeth and Joanna, that thing about our oh, girlfriends are most chaste. They they really do follow up on that. That when Ted goes to kiss Elizabeth, she you know he's just proposed to her, and she's yes, and she's thrilled with that, and she turns her cheek so that he can kiss her in a chaste and and sexless manner upon the cheek in this lovely kind of affectionate and ted's not like oh i was expecting to finally get tongue at this point (laughs) they're fine with that
5: yeah it's one of the things that i adore the most about them that moment sticks out to me is like yes this is truly what being excellent to each other is about like Mm them sort of lamenting that the that that the princesses won't stay over but they're like but like we respect that that is that is how they roll like that's their whole Mm. that's their existence and like we can wish it were different for ourselves but understand that this is them being their most authentic selves and like we love that about them and i think that Mm -hmm. not to bring back the awful awful television series
2: (laughs) that is why
5: it is such a character betrayal to hear them behaving as a bunch of chodes in a hardware store because like if they have the ability to respect women then they would respect this woman as well you know
0: Got an idea for Jeremy Piven presents a bunch of chodes in a hardware store. A bunch (laughs) of chodes in a hardware store. And they all get mercury poisoning. Yay. (laughs) Plot See you real soon. This sequence always was for me and was kind of redoubled by much of the text of uh, Face the Music, which we'll, of course, get into next week. This is maybe the most Bill and Ted moment of... of all of the uh, the first two films. They mm. propose to their respective girlfriends at the same time, with the same words, and they use the term, will you marry us, without irony. Mm-hmm. They're a unit. They are yeah. together already. They're trying to kind of, s- like, seal the deal on getting the-, the babes, the girls, the princesses, into this, effectively, a foursome with, with, yeah. uh, with, with them. Because, like... Uh, and this is something that they come up against again. Like we'll we'll talk about it next week. But when they say, "Will you marry us?" that that, that they really mean it.
2: Yeah.
4: Yeah. At, at this point, uh, and this is something that we talked about with Spiros on our show that we'll plug a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But at this point in their lives, Bill and Ted are like the quintessential ideal of empathy, and they are so uh, they they are they have so much. Empathy and they are so in sync with this that they are, like you said, they are one unit. They have no sense of individuality. They have mm-hmm. no sense of self between them.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: And it, it's something, it, it ends up being the thing that they have to get past a little bit and claim a little bit of that self eventually later on. They don't do it in this movie, but that's where they're at right now. They're still in that, like, we are the. We are the platonic ideal of if a person, if you could personify empathy, it would be Bill and Ted hmm. as one unit. Mm-hmm. Which would be why the, the future stemming from that makes
0: uh, all kinds of sense in terms of what mm-hmm. it actually mm-hmm. is.
1: Well, it's it's the the membrane, for want of a better word, between... Them and the rest of the universe being so permeable that it might as well not exist. Mm. They just, they blend and are one with each other and with the rest of the universe.
0: The only difference Mm -hmm. I would have made in terms of design choice and, uh, uh, I suppose, on-set decisions would be to have um, Ted get with the uh, strawberry blonde Joanna and Bill get with the dark-haired Elizabeth because (laughs) Mm -hmm. it would make much more sense that their opposite in this particular (laughs) conjunction is not uh, uh, what appears to be a female version of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Speaking of female versions of them, hold that back for next week. But you you see (laughs) what I mean? It makes more sense if they go with someone who looks more like their opposite.
1: Well, they they are even able to express love to the evil robot versions of themselves, who are trying to kill them.
0: I'm not sure that was really love. That was more just trying to sweet talk them so they wouldn't kill <laughs> but them. But the
5: point is that that's how they <laughs> choose to try and overcome them, yeah. rather than. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, they're they're the precursor of Steven Universe, where it's like I'm not going to fight you. I'm going to friend you instead. No, it's nice. like I don't I don't want to resort to violence. I would like to resort to empathizing with you and seeing if we can find a de-escalation in the situation you know it's not the words that bill and ted would be using because like the idea of de-escalation is just so natural to them that it's just their default but like that's exactly Mm -hmm. what they do every single time Mm -hmm. just like how do we mitigate any any real conflict and really find out like what your deal is you know it's why the time fight at the end is so charming because it's just like they're just, like, going back to try and, like, make sure that they have the upper hand. It's not that they're trying to destroy the other person. It's just, like, we got to put the thing in the place that we need. And then the battle for- just never happens.
0: Yeah. yeah. Right. And nobody dies.
5: Exactly.
0: <laughs> Except for the robot doubles, who seem to be fine with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They've had a good run. <laughs> and they they're managed to, to get through without killing cats that we know of. Um <laughs> I uh, put a pin in that Steven Universe thing there, because uh, we will be coming back to that.
5: Yeah. Um, my favorite
2: thing.:
0: Speaking of the evil robot selves, uh, the, I think that there's elements of the film which actually get kind of uncomfortable, that all seem to be sort of uh, linked to these. The uh, When Evil TED says, "I've got a full-on robot chubby," it just it's like, so y- you were designed to be able to get erections. And then they have like they, they plan unsavory uh, conduct, and then they seem to be uh, uh, carrying that out later on when uh, Ghost Bill and Ted uh, find them with the babes again. And that that's a really fucked up scene.
4: <laughs> that was really uncomfortable on this yeah. rewatch.
0: Yeah, mm. there are things they could have done otherwise, which would have basically told the same story without the idea of um, raped by a Terminator. Let's let's mm-hmm. face uh, it and mm-hmm. use very plain language. Uh, but- yeah, it, it, it's that the aesthetic of this film sort of can't hold that. It's like you go
3: from raped by a Terminator to her escaping to like, oh, high five that she didn't. And yeah. the the reaction of high five just throws the whole thing into disarray. You're like, it almost tricks you into thinking you didn't see what you just saw. Mm-hmm. And that in and of itself is so disorienting because yeah. any moment like that deserves actual time, weight room to breathe.
0: It's... They they misjudged several bits in this. They did like kind of manage to backpedal on a couple. Uh, originally, when the evil robots burst into Missy's living room, they originally punched her right in the face, clopped her, Ooh. and then what? when she goes, bah, 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 with like the uh, um, tweeting birds, uh, that's because they just punched her. But they uh, re-edited it and um, had, uh, whoa, evil breath instead, which is a much less... Uh, horrendous um, abuse. So, yeah, they, they they were kind of operating with something of a head on their shoulders, but it wasn't across the board. And I think the whole uh, robot assault thing was totally one of those uh, moments. And another being um, the F-bomb being dropped again. again. Twice. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> yeah.
1: And several... Uh... Somebody's got a scorching case of the not gay.
0: Yeah, there's well. quite a few, mm-hmm. like, uh, yeah, quite a few of those bits. The um, the bit where uh, the, two of Missy's friends, the the male ones, are both these writers, Ed Solomon and Chris Matheson. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> there was a point when they were sort of on the couch, and you went, "Oh, are they uh, a, a gay couple?" And then a bunch of women sat down next to them, and one of them put his arm around the woman just to say, "Nope, just in case you were worried about that." And ultimately, the whole, you know, hugging each other and then going F- that doesn't come from someone who uh, is actually switched on about how to address this particular bit of toxic masculinity there. The fact that the robots use it against them is like, you could just about, like, you know, that could almost be a comment on uh, the the egregious use of it in the first film. And then just as they're uh, falling, just about to fall down, Yeah, they they could just go, Whoa, remember when we used to say that? I'm glad we've grown up beyond it. Now now only the evil versions of us do it. But then they throw that at the devil himself. And while on the writer's commentary, uh, I think it's Ed Solomon says that's an okay thing to call Satan, and it's like, no, it's not. Hey. <laughs> no, 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 wrong. So hey,
5: when, when hey, you're wrong and your wrongness. So when Ted actually
0: calls him it, I, I can almost imagine Satan shouting as he fires him backwards against the wall. You know, call each other whatever you want to down in hell. try not to gay bash.
5: I think it would have been so funny if the devil taught them a lesson in empathizing with the, like, the LGBTQ community. <laughs> I would have loved that so much. That is, like,
3: like hold it, like, in the back being like, there's a place in hell for everyone.
5: Yeah. Like, but I, that's I not a like, reason people go here.
4: He's shoving them back against the wall and he goes, love is love.
0: <laughs> Whoa. Satan is totally switched on. Um, but when they finally get killed up that uh, Star Trek um, mountain, which is uh, neatly signposted on the uh, TV show, in case you might have missed mm-hmm. it, from mm-hmm. uh, Arena, isn't it? The one where he fights the Gorn. Yeah. Uh, small fortune in stones. That's one. The actual, like, making everything black and white. They were, they were consi- like sort of working out whether they could do early Pleasantville tech for this. And they ended up just sort of painting Bill and Ted and, and just sort of having them wear grey clothing. It's actually fairly masterfully done. They, it, it, you, you lose it when you watch the earlier VHS versions, but it really pops on Blu-ray, <laughs> the absence of colour that, yeah. the, the, that they had before. And it made me realise quite how infantilized Bill and Ted themselves are. Like they've gotten older than they were, and it seems like they're dressed more like adults um because they're not wearing shorts in in the case of Ted, and they don't have it, it you know quite such a sort of a childish um sensibility about them they've 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 grown a little bit and they've started to get a bit dejected as their hearts start to die as they get older
1: well i think mm. the the uh, implication of the girls having their five hundred and twenty first birthday is mm-hmm. that Bill and Ted are twenty one
0: okay yeah um but the actual clothing they do wear bill's got this backwards red baseball cap which is very like you know that that is a fairly childish look and ted is wearing this great big yellow smiley on the back of his jacket they look like the children that they then briefly become in hell yeah <laughs> mm. and if you look yeah. at the uh, promo stuff there is a lot of them with their arms folded like them sort of like standing there sort of copping an attitude arms folded yo And if you look at the promo stuff for uh, Excellent Adventure, there is a lot of one hand on heart, the other one flung outwards, presenting themselves to us. Mm -hmm. And open, specifically. Open
1: open to the universe.
0: So it's
4: almost like a bi-bogus journey that started to close off. Mm. They remind me with, it only just occurred to me, like, in this instant, but they remind me of, like... The kids in the foot clan from Mm. the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like that kind of rebellious, like Mm. we're going to wear clothes that don't make sense just because they piss off our parents type of attitude. That was pretty
0: much the entire 80s with the new romantic look. It was like, oh, my dad would be furious with me if he saw me wearing this. Okay, <laughs> mm-hmm. lipstick on.
1: But their dads <laughs> won't be furious with them. Their dads don't seem to be paying them that much attention anymore mm. at all. I mean... Um... Mm-hmm. Uh, Captain Logan seems to have completely given up on the idea of shipping Ted off to military school. I mean, obviously he's kind of aged He's out, 21 you know, now. school now. but no. you know, I don't know, he could sign him up for the army well, or something. He
0: seems to be much more chilled, and I think the fact that Missy has moved on to him mm. uh, might be mm. something well, to do with that. That's a
5: good point, yeah. yeah. Uh, <gasps> can we talk about how Missy is the greatest through line of this trilogy? I just yeah. love <laughs> Missy more than words can say. It's literally the thing that makes my heart joyful every time is just like where's missy now i love her i love her <laughs>
0: <laughs> amy stock was remarkably professional in the end the um the bit where she has to speak backwards for the exorcism um, she was handed the lines, and it's something along the lines of Bill and Ted will rule the world backwards. But she went home, recorded herself, and then listened back to it playing backwards so that she could say it accurately. <gasps> that, that's nice. way above and beyond for such a silly show.
5: Hero scene. on screen and off.
0: Yeah. And like, <laughs> she actually got quite pissed off because she was like, oh, come on. So like, she found out about the, the Missy to Wed Denomalous when she saw the film because that, that reel hadn't been shown to the rest of the cast. So she's like, oh, that's what happens to my character? So I, I kind of like what she ended up doing in the third film. We'll keep that for then. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but but uh, Hal Landon Jr., who uh, played uh, uh, Ted's father, and uh, I love the fact that he's in the third film as well, and seems to again have mellowed even further. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was was told you've got to act like Bill when he possessed. Sorry, you got to. I played Ted. You've got to act like Ted. <laughs> Thank
2: you. you just well, lost
0: well, all, all your cred. <laughs> uh, so he had to act like Ted. Uh, so he went home and watched Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure repeatedly, studying Keanu Reeves's mannerisms, which is why when you compare him to the guy who was in Total Recall, who's like, "I totally believe you, dude," uh, like he's doing like what surfer kids sound like, mm. um, you know, through the voice of that. But uh, Hal Landon is really going, oh, me and Bill. He's holding himself in that weird way and he almost, he's acting more like Ted in Excellent Adventure than Keanu Reeves is acting like Ted in Excellent Adventure here because his performance has been slightly altered by time and experience. Mm. Can I
4: also take just a second to call out whoever did the sound effects for this scene because Mm. his air guitar riff sounds like a banjo and I love it. It's my Uh... favourite part of the whole movie. It is... (laughs) It is such a good like, and when you start to unpack the idea
3: of that, that like the riffs would be different on a person to age to mm-hmm. like I don't know openness <laughs> with the world kind of basis. It just the possibilities become endless, and it's such a fascinating little moment. Yeah, yeah. it kind of backs
1: up that your air guitar comes from your heart theory. Yeah,
5: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I do want I do want to touch base on the on the interview where the that poor interview gets the name wrong Mm -hmm. we just spent like 20 minutes talking about how (laughs) these two characters are inseparable in the same person i think we should go easy on ourselves if we like switch them because like kind of the the thesis of this trilogy of movies is that these two humans are inseparable Mm. like in intertwined so deeply that they speak in almost this like third person and they think as this like one, almost like a station. You could almost uh, say, uh, or twins, or twins. You know, more than twins though. Like a like a Dragon Ball Z fusion uh, <laughs> in two bodies. I was gonna say a Steven Universe fusion, but I didn't want to get too like deep on the steven universe bill and ted connections but i think that it is really interesting that like that is a mistake that is often made you know
3: oh well and, and to back it up and, and to bring it back to uh how landon jr when we do see him and missy hook up it would be so easy to have a line about them being brothers now mm-hmm. and it doesn't exist mm-hmm. right in fact they are already past that in their unification as two people. And it's a small Mm -hmm. but very telling detail to me that that phrase never gets used. I think most films would find a joke there or a beat there for it, and it doesn't happen.
0: I do like the, uh, you know, maybe she'll marry you. Then you'll be your own stepdad. The the additional confusion <laughs> as they go through this because they're kind of mystified by Missy. Like they they are not disapproving, but they are kind of, oh, whoa, what's going to be next? Mm. Kind of.
1: Well, they, it kind of enhances that notion that their perception of formalized relationships is very blurry, hmm. and that's not always to the bad.
0: And it's mm. always her choice as well. Like it's she, oh, she's yeah. never absolutely like she decides. I'm going to go to this person, and I, yeah. I do like the fact that the films never really shame her for that. Mm. It's just yeah. kind of how she rolls. And and like it's it's Bill's dad who looks kind of crushed and eats Twinkies while he's watching yeah. on like the ghost at the feast. But I mean, even which ironically they then become. <laughs> wow,
1: <very good. laughs> even the Missy to Wed Denomalis thing at the end it's like well she made captain logan chill out maybe she can help the Mm. anomalous chill out too
0: also it's debatable as to how much of that stuff actually did happen in the final timeline very
1: true
0: um Mm. so uh we uh briefly uh meet death but we'll come back around to death in a bit uh but the um i would like to just at least note that the the point where death first appears and he's just sort of up over there on the hill and there's that bass beat Mm. And then he's gone when they look back again. And then he's behind them. That's really creepy and effective. Yeah. Agreed. It really, really is. Uh, and apparently uh, William Sadler found out after he'd done the film about the Seventh Seal. Like, he wasn't really <gasps> deliberately doing Ingmar Bergman's <gasps> classic. <laughs> wow. It was ju- I mean, maybe the director was nudging him towards it in terms of well, visually he, speaking. Yeah. But-
2: I mean,
1: from, from a script perspective, <laughs> yeah. that was there, obviously. <laughs>
0: but he ended up going in a totally different direction as well. But um so let's take ourselves to the environs of hell and it feels like this is the first part of the movie that really drops the ball in terms of they face their greatest fears and those are never resolved. Mm. And both of those fears you could extrapolate a lot more than I think the writers did mm. in that they are both infantilized and turned back into children and it's both the scenario where they feel like they're getting either a loss of control or a loss of something. Mm. So,
1: And specifically I'm... there are negative things happening that they associate with their respective um, family members. Mm. It's It's mm. something that you could see that laying down the bedrock of well I don't really want to be engaged with my family I want to be engaged with my friend mm.
0: Mm. let's uh, do each one in turn so 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 what does the uh, the Oates military camp equate to in their minds well, if if the if it's a lack of
3: control with the family stuff, then like the military camp is total control, mm. but a, a loss of it too, right? Like uh, the military life is regimented; it represents mm. a certain kind of value system. It means from your waking moment to your sleeping moment, you live, breathe, represent this idea that goes against the idea of kind of a freewheeling adventure. And I think in some ways. the antithesis of being excellent to one another can be boot camp and i say that as someone who has military family members and who's worked with veterans a lot like this is not commentary on soldiers but like the boot camp procedure itself is a kind of broken down hell Mm. and is the thing where it's like you are signing up for a a remolding of sorts Mm. and i think that's very frightening Mm. To and it's um,
1: specifically as well the fact that the the military academy stick that was always wielded over Ted in the first one, which is, is one of the kind of driving motivations for them to keep going because that's what they're trying to avoid.
2: Mm.
1: The way it's framed in that is the purpose of military school is to teach you self-control, but it's not. The purpose of boot camp and, and so this military regimented, um, way of behaving is that you you hand over control of yourself to somebody else they don't you you don't learn to then walk away and be in control of yourself you just you fit this rigid template where control is just always there mm-hmm.
3: yeah yeah, and you're theoretically being designed for something that you may not get a say in, right? You may be where these movies are being made around the time of the Iraq War. Mm. Like you're you're being put in the boot camp to maybe go represent a war or an idea that you don't believe in or that you have feelings about, but it doesn't matter, you're going to wind up there. Yeah. So even Ooh. that sense, they're headed towards that potentially too.
5: And not to mention the fact that like the idea of individuality is completely lost in Mm -hmm. in a military life you know and while bill and ted are reflections of each other they are still very different than the norms of those around them they are a, a duo of outliers and that sort of military sameness is also very frightening you know that you are put into a mold exactly like the person next to you who's exactly like the person next to you and so on and so on and sort of like that autonomy and individuality and creative spark is would be lost to them if if that were the case you know it would be crew cuts and And camo and uh, no more rock guitars, you know. Yeah, they would
1: potentially lose their bond with each other and it would be subsumed into their bond Mm -hmm. with the The larger collective. Yeah,
0: Mm Core, unit.
1: Unit core, God country. Thank
0: Mm. you. (laughs) Unit core, God country. Uh, That's specifically the Marines, though, isn't it? Uh, Yes. As opposed to just military academy, which is somewhat nebulous. Um, Okay, but... So so that would effectively be handing over their lives to this aggressive um, Colonel Oates, who we've already seen in, in the mm-hmm. film as, as being someone who's not going to give, uh, you know, Ted any uh, room to be himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but the next one is uh, Bill, uh, as a kid, is asked to kiss his rotten old grandmother, uh, played by uh, uh, Alex Winter, who was, like, really into the idea. <laughs> Alex uh, was, around about this time, Alex made his own film called Freaked, which uh, uh, featured uh, Keanu Reeves in a cameo as Ortiz, the dog-faced boy. And he was really <laughs> into the idea of being a director and, and and uh, like, you know, throwing himself into film. And here he was like, give me a hump, give me gammy teeth, give me just all the age makeup you can get. And, and just really just became this gnarled old woman but this time I looked at the people around the table as Bill's being little Bill is mm-hmm. being almost uh, the way the camera's going dragged across the table towards Granny S Preston Esquire which by the way mm-hmm. doesn't even make sense as a name but, um, <laughs> but the people are just sort of like they're all gray and they're staring and they look horrifying so much worse than Granny mm-hmm. if you look at their faces and so what is this fear
2: they...
4: I, I had to rewind that like mm-hmm. and actually like watch that se- sequence twice mm-hmm. because the first time I watched through it I thought that it was sets of twins on either side of the table ah. and I was mm. really creeped out it's not but they managed to like do like their makeup and everything to make them all look like very samey and similar and creepy and gross mm. And what's this fear of then? Well,
1: what it makes, what it puts me in mind of, is because I mean, obviously, we can deduce that the perception of his grandmother is that comes from Bill. This is it's his way of seeing her. She probably didn't look.
0: He's exaggerated her like Pip does to Miss Havisham in uh, Great Expectations.
1: But but what struck me about watching at this time is that the the source of the actual. threat is not so much her it's all the people holding him in place and preventing him from leaving preventing Mm. him from fleeing and it put me in mind of the the idea of when children are little as a society we have a tendency to oblige them to engage Mm. in physical contact Mm -hmm. with people that might be strangers to them that might be for some reason frightening to them we don't give them any capacity to refuse that without then making them feel like ungrateful little beasts
0: because it's a social faux pas to say no. Don't feel like yeah, it. Exactly. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, don't right. I don't, this is, this I don't like want um, to
5: hug my grandma yeah. because I don't feel comfortable with that in my body. Yeah, it is. It is a weird thing. I thought about that a lot when I was working with children. Mm. This idea of allowing them the space to be okay to say no, like when I was singing to babies, or like working as an elf at Macy's, like I would always offer, you know, like some point of contact, like a high five. And if a kid was like, nah, I'd be like, okay, man, that's up to you. And then I would like go away because I, I wanted to even that small interaction, like honor their autonomy. And I think that's another interesting thing about this fear. Again, it is the loss of autonomy, the loss of the ability to say yay or nay in your life. I think that a lot of these spheres are losing what is special about Bill and Ted Mm. to the whims of others.
0: It's a soft version of a fascist regime in that, no, you're going to kiss that old lady. You don't have a say in it. Yeah. Um, Obviously, the the penalty is just, you know, obviously... Ostracism and being sent to your room if you refuse, um, or maybe losing a birthday present later on—I don't know. But the, the the point is that it's it's the being presented with marching orders. Mm. It's mm. not dissimilar to the uh, um, military camp.
1: Yeah. There's also a degree of emotional blackmail in it, which yeah. then crosses over into Ted's fear because the the final. I mean, we can talk about the whole thing um, in more detail, but the final punch that Ted receives is you made your little brother cry.
0: You made your little brother cry. Yeah. Uh, and this is a much more complex fear relative to the first two. What's it about?
4: That's a great question. I, I actually have kind of an alternate take to both of these last two.
2: Um,
4: I, uh, I don't think that these last two are actually displays of fear. Mm -hmm. I think that these last two are demonstrations of guilt Mm -hmm. and of shame. Mm -hmm. Because remember, this is, this is 1991. We didn't have the same ideas uh, regarding consent and children that we did, that we do now. Mm. So, all of this stuff about... And we already know the writers are a little (laughs) old-fashioned. Right. (laughs) About, like, being forced to, you know, kiss Granny and all of that. Like, we're we're taking a modern read on that that may very well not... Just straight up not have been there in 1991. So... The first like military academy thing, obviously, that is a fear. That is like you are losing control. It could be expressed as a as a as an expression of guilt, also as like you're here because you failed, Mm. because you are not the people that you that you were supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So now you're in military school instead, and you're going to grow up to become John Wick. Um, (laughs) But but the like the kissing the granny, this basically like perpetual need to like the 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 embarrassment the shame the guilt of not wanting to kiss granny mm-hmm. because remember these these two people are profoundly empathetic and mm-hmm. not wanting to be affectionate to someone not like having to relive not wanting to care about a person or to express that care for that person would be its own little hell and then the same mm-hmm. thing with with Ted where Really, the only thing that we see here is he's on his way up with the basket. He starts munching on candy from the basket that's supposed to be for Deacon. Mm-hmm. And the Easter Bunny yells at him for eating Deacon's candy and making Deacon cry. And this whole thing is just these two having to relive these, like, most shameful parts of their childhood. You were
1: selfish, that... you didn't share. Exactly. Exactly.
4: Yeah. If you
0: look at the time frame, uh, if Ted's just turned 21, that means he was 11. Maybe a little bit too old to believe in the Easter Bunny, which suggests Dicky being several years younger than him, got a basket of Easter biscuits, and Ted did not. Which means him stealing that is like him going, I want this wonderful pink illusion a bit more i don't want to to be the kid who's growing up and is now too old for the easter bunny so weirdly in his head his guilt manifested itself as this aggressive pink squeaky talking easter bunny telling him you upset the balance and Mm -hmm. you made your brother cry but ultimately when it comes down to it uh Ted and Bill both kind of seem to fear growing up, and both seem to fear, like, they, like I said, the, the way they dress. The adult world has not been kind to them. They're working at pretzels and cheese, and it fucking sucks.
2: Mm. They were told oh, it, they were
0: going to be great ones and they aren't. Well, I suppose we'll <laughs> get to more on that in the next film. But
1: Working in a pretzels and cheese is mm-hmm. actually a step up from how I initially understood that conversation with Mrs. Wardrow. When she says they'll work, <laughs> work for, for,
0: pretzels for pretzels and, pretzels
4: and cheese, and cheese.
1: <laughs> I thought she meant literally. <laughs>
4: As in like... Uh, I we- can
1: pay you in pretzels and cheese. <laughs> that
4: was kind of my take too. <laughs> Rock bands have been paid less.
3: I mean, <laughs> yeah, my- That's really true. Really and truly.
1: Yeah, the rider has M. Because that's all we get to take home. Yeah. Theater! You
4: made your little brother cry!
2: How about (gasps) a kiss? For your dear old granny, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Bill. You stole Deacon's Easter biscuit! No way! This was ten years ago! Uh huh.
0: The actual original uh, ending of this involved them being chased in the real world by uh, Granny S. Preston, Colonel Oates, and this giant, savage Easter bunny that got made. They made the model of it, this big, toothy, Frank the Bunny-looking motherfucker. They were being chased around in the van. If you look very carefully, you can see claw marks in the uh, roof of the van from when the bunny was clambering on it. They actually put this in a Marvel comic later on when they were uh, elaborating on this. And the way that it was going to be finished was, and I think the the writers said this in a kind of an offhand, oh, it was just an idea way. Bill, as an adult, had to kiss Granny and make that go away. And I'm Mm -hmm. assuming Ted had to, I think they said Ted had to forgive himself. That's key to the movie. Like, these are their fears they need to get past in order to get older. The fact that these are not followed up on and resolved is to the detriment of the movie. Like, as daft as that, like, almost like the Michael Jackson video for Speed Demon, imagining a van chasing after them <laughs> with these... With like, a
1: stop-mo bunny on the back. Yeah,
0: um, but but the actual, the, the like, what it would represent would be everything about Bill and Ted's bogus journey, and they don't do that.
3: And it's really interesting you mention that, and, and something we'll probably get into in the next movie a little bit, but those are things they would have to confront on their own ostensibly, Mm -hmm. right? And in the sequence in Hell, they get separated. And I was struck by how spare the rooms either are at first or in Ted's case is almost the entire time. Mm -hmm. And the third movie, again, we'll get to it uh, next week, really kind of pays off in the idea of what do you have to confront alone in order to grow? And how is that Um, a a moment of growth having that conversation with yourself because one of the things they fear most is being apart from one another which Rachel was sort of hitting at when we talked about the military aspect of it all too and that by not confronting that in this film it sort of winds up rolling over to the next one a little bit more
0: so then we move on to oh aside from the fact that we get welkered four times in this movie. <laughs> Frank is there with I can't I tried to do this voice when we we're doing Mortal Kombat Annihilation and it hurt me. It's like a shade no. sideways of Dr. Claw but he used it for his you weak pathetic fools voice in Mortal Kombat. Uh, but he's also the uh, Easter Bunny and he's both versions of Station and one assumes at uh, five times, then he's the conjoined version of St- station as well. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, now Frank I Welker was making up like a Ironically, uh, <laughs>
2: we'll, we it. will get
0: to station. I promise you, <laughs> we'll get to that station. Um, but we we now move sideways to death. This thing that they have to confront, and the trope is always that death is really good at. And this also, you're talking about how uh, uh, Satan is tied in with various other dark deities and underworld uh, overlords. But Mm -hmm. uh, Satan and death are kind of um, simpatico in terms of being challenged and the idea that you challenge Mm -hmm. Satan to a fiddle duel and he's going to beat you because he does nothing but fiddle all day. It's been ten long
2: years since the devil laid his fiddle at Johnny's feet and it burned inside his mind the way he suffered that defeat. In the darkest pits of hell, the devil hatched an evil plan to tempt the
0: fiddle player, for he's just a mortal man. The the assumption is just that Death is really, really good at chess. So if you challenge him, it's pretty much like assured you're going to lose this one. Mm -hmm. And it's so weirdly, warmingly reassuring that they play against Death. Best three out of five. They play against Death over and over again at games that he has knocking around in his mansion that Mm -hmm. he should be really good at and he's not as good as a pair of 21 year olds
1: why would he be really good at games that require other people to play them because he doesn't have anybody to play with he can't practice twister any more than they can practice their guitars because
0: no one takes him up on the offer of you must play against me so he's never gotten he may be really good at chess Mm. but uh, he isn't fantastic at Cluedo and he isn't fantastic at electric football
1: as I understand Mm it, the whole death being really good at chess thing, the, the point of that is that it's symbolic, that no matter how good you are at strategy, yeah. you cannot out-strategy death. It's it death
2: and
0: taxes. you is, in yeah. the end. Right. And the Republicans have worked out how to deal with the second one of those two.
2: <laughs> yes,
5: unlike the actor who plays Death, everyone in the universe of Bill and Ted has actually seen The Seventh Seal.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had never heard of it,
0: but... Yes. Uh, the um, oh, The... <laughs> This scene, weirdly, makes Hellraiser not scary for me. The notion in both is that death is the end of life, but not of existence. And Clive Barker's trying so hard to instill us with this existential dread. And I'm like, couldn't you just play the Cenobites at Twister and just get away at this point?
5: The divine agony of Twister.
0: (laughs) We have such guess who to show you. (laughs) (laughs) Left. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, like, William Sadler's, uh, in contrast with uh, um, Denomalous, in terms of, I don't want to be here, and I'm just going to use this sense of being disgruntled for my character. um, William Sadler just full-throatedly entered into being death and just added more and more to him. That (laughs) I love the fact that he's anxiety-ridden all the time and seems to want to be given... Uh, credit for things you wouldn't normally credit for, uh, death, such as his I buns of steel. I pushed the cards. I made the wigs, and uh, don't overlook my butt. And it it just, it, it seems like he's very uncomfortable, but he's also, like, uh, over the course of the bogus journey itself, starts to really warm to not just doing his day-to-day job.
2: Mm. <laughs>
3: yeah having that sense of freedom that bill and ted do in fact like kind of breaking mm-hmm. out of his mm-hmm. routine a little bit yeah and starting to enjoy it and and i'll back that up even with like you said that he's anxiety riddled all the time and he wants the attention affirmation this is the only death I've ever seen who makes the see you soon joke, which happens in multiple movies. Mm-hmm. But this is the only time where I feel like it's the first time death has ever made that joke. And I'm absolutely convinced that's the line reading in this movie when he says see you soon to the cigarette guy. Like, he can't believe he came up with that. It's yeah, a beautiful shorts.
0: Yeah. That was uh, Sadler um, uh, came up with that on the spot and they didn't have an extra to play the smoking guy. Uh, I believe the director ended up standing in for him. And uh, the studio didn't like it because they said it's going to encourage smoking. And they had to explain several times, it's the opposite of encouraging smoking. <laughs> We're telling kids, if you smoke, you'll die faster. Yeah. <laughs> so they had to fight for it. But yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's a great little delivery. I, again, I love uh, uh, the, the use of death in here. Again, the, the the idea of the afterlife being this kind of, befuddled bureaucracy uh, you know it can it can be kind of strangely comforting to to imagine things being just as bungled on the other side as they are here hmm.
1: but I also really like the the lobby if you like to the afterlife being this hmm. beach with the mansion that death Inhabits mm. and how lonely it is, and how, yeah. like I said, he's so isolated that he hasn't had chance to. Well, as as I said already, practice the games, but also they call him on how bad a sportsman he is in mm. the sense <laughs> that he's a really bad loser.
2: Yeah,
0: damn right.
1: Yeah, and but but the way that they um, express their victory mm. is how you would expect. Bill and Ted to do that. They compliment him on what he did well. And, um, you know, they, they kind of indulge him when he insists on playing one more round. Mm-hmm. You know, they are really good sportsmen at the end of the day.
0: He has a lot to learn about sportsmanship. Yeah, that's their biggest <laughs> put-down like- for, <laughs> for him. They just uh, luckily don't call him the F-bomb.
4: But... Um... <laughs> I feel like Bill and Ted it really illustrate in, in this scene, particularly with death, that... They are kind of the predecessor to a lot of the like modern sort of empathy heroes, like Rachel's brought up Steven Universe, Steven Universe. a bunch of times. Hello. I'm gonna bring up uh or yeah, Kipo and the oh. Age of Wonder Beasts is yeah. another really good example where the the hero basically doesn't really defeat anyone. They just mm. like They 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 friend you into like they they friend you into submission like they're just nice to you over and over and over and over and over again until you eventually just sort of slowly find yourself becoming the person that they see you as. I'm going to add to that uh, shortlist there. Uh,
0: Emmett from the Lego movie and uh, oh, Luz yeah. from the Owl House as well. And Mabel. Yeah, Luz from, I was from the I say Owl House. I was going to say Mabel, Mabel. Pines. Mabel, Mabel Pines, sure.
5: yeah, yeah, yeah. These people uh, have no it, interest we're, in defeating to, their enemies. Weird their to eddies. notice that th- those are all animated characters. Hmm. Wow. It's, all, it's almost like animation understands empathy than li- uh, more than live action. Oh, 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 excuse me. Is that my brand calling?
2: It <laughs> <laughs>
5: finally <laughs> happened. How's it going?
4: What is the meaning of life?
2: Every rose has its thorn Just like every night has its dawn Just like every cowboy sings a sad, sad song Every rose has a thorn
0: Don't I
2: know you? No.
0: Okay, so let's go to heaven, because uh, that, again, adds to the comfort level. There's, I, I know people, um, a lot of people t- tend to uh, sort of c- take comfort in the idea that there is someone running everything, that fate is, uh, you know, mm-hmm. making everything happen, uh, and that we actually are powerless and just sticks adrift in a, uh, a river. But um, the idea that, like I said, that, that everything kind of sort of muddles along, and that God himself is just like, station, but he doesn't say, oh, I had a plan for you guys. Glad you turned up at last. Like, he's this version of heaven they kind of con their way into and just sort of fudge mm-hmm. things until they get to station it's not really uh, a state of them following a uh, liquid spear of their own destiny at this stage mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> yeah
1: there is yeah. that sense of i mean we've talked before about the the bureaucracy of the afterlife and it, it was a particular hallmark of like the what the 40s 30s 40s 50s mm-hmm. kind of era um but I really like it. I know a lot of people don't, but it, it to me, it is very comforting because it kind of feels like, um, right, without wanting to nail too many uh, religious or spiritual colours to the mast, it kind of feels like there isn't necessarily a big grand authority that's external to us it's it's humans and this is what humans are like they like things Mm. to run relatively orderly and even if they're dead they still kind of like things to be relatively orderly so it feels like if there was not a bureaucracy of the afterlife the first few people through the gate would set one up
2: yeah
3: (laughs) yeah and and conversely i also like that there's basically room for mischief in heaven Mm -hmm. you know like in this version of heaven you can knock someone out outside of the gates and steal their clothes. Steal their clothes. and you haven't gotten caught <laughs> like, like 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 there's a version of heaven where the second you're even within the proximity of this gate, that's a big no. There's no way it's even going to happen by the rules of the world. And yet Bill and Ted basically play well-intentioned, good-hearted mischief makers mm-hmm. in this world. It, it It certainly fits a moral like a higher moral code, but it it isn't um. It isn't like a sort of a clean
4: version of divinity either, which is really, it's fun.
2: Mm. And not it makes... only do
4: they not get caught, they, they cop to it. Like yeah. when they go, they talk to God and they're like, dude, we're sorry. We're not the three wise men. We actually mugged three people to get in here. <laughs> but it's really important. And God's just like, all right. Okay. what?" Yeah. He, he does the go Ted shrug. Then. I'm imagining like, yeah. I'm imagining, you know, Bill or or, or God in the back just kind of going,
0: what you said about 1940s definitely applies uh, in terms of the version of the afterlife if you remember the uh, music when they get to hell it's very kind of golden age of Hollywood, it's not, I think this was uh, uh, David Newman, brother of Thomas doesn't feel particularly suited to a Bill and Ted film, and the version of Heaven that they go to is modeled on uh, the one in A Matter of Life and Death, which is a smashing British film, uh, which intersects with the afterlife repeatedly. Like, sort of, it almost feels like the afterlife kind of stopped advancing beyond a certain point, hence the devil when he finds that um, hoe uh, in uh, the uh, the department store, like, "Mm, should I update this thing? And, and Satan appears to have not really updated his just general state of tech since the Industrial Revolution, so it's... Well, that
1: was a particularly hellish period,
0: yeah. to be fair. Yeah, it's an antiquated version of hell, but a modern-day version of uh, heaven would look much more like the bridge of the Enterprise, I feel.
1: Mm. Well, the, the thing that, that the struck Abrams me... The Abrams Enterprise. <laughs> the thing that struck me about... The, the aesthetic of heaven when they arrive is that it's very reminiscent of ancient Greece. Mm. We were there. there it were was most tranquil. There were many columns. It was most tranquil. And what do they have here? Steps and columns.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like this was kind of knocking around in the, the heads of the writers at the, at the time. It, it, this journeying to heaven and, and, and through hell, and even the um, the way they obtain entrance to talk to God is not a million miles shy of how they get to talk to the babes in, uh, in medieval England. <laughs> they just kind of wing it. It's also not a million miles away from pizza delivery, dude. This then takes a side turn into station. And a lot of people really what? hate station from the sounds of it. I love
5: station. It.
0: This is a direct tweet from Ed Solomon on December 9th, 2017. I really owe you all an apology. Station started as a typo. We deleted a scene, interior police station, and somehow station was left dangling. It was dangling and he didn't even know it. We were so crazily punch drunk, we started saying, station, 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 in a tinny Martian voice, the station.
2: Anyone out there in listening land got a bad station tattoo? Because they exist. Are you shitting me? Yeah, dude. People have station tattoos. Oh, yeah. Send that in. I want that disgusting thing on my body for the rest of my life. That's a qu- disgusting. Why do I... Why, what's with this thing's
3: ass? In all, <laughs> I see this ass so many times. I see it... And in the short form
2: and the long form. Right, because they
5: jump together and merge to become one Yeah, three. they do
2: like a, a non-lethal time copping of themselves. That's right. gross. They turn into a puddle of shit. And <laughs> from this shit grows this like seven foot thing also voiced by Frank goes Station. You right. Know, you know, for as much as I hate Station, I take solace in the fact that he's fucking dead already. <laughs> Someone already got to station and took them out. Well, that's, yeah, the, that's the ghost station, I forgot. It is. But no, I think God, are allows you saying these the, aliens no. to be because Bill and Ted are reborn? What, oh, I thought you were saying that the like they the UFO they fly their UFO to heaven and hang out and they're no, alive.
3: No, I don't think that happens, but also so, saying, so station are aliens from the year 1991. Yes. Right. I that are
2: deceased. Yeah, they probably, <laughs> you know, they probably died in, like, 85, 84. <laughs> coke party? <laughs> yep. Dude, you see those huge schnozzes uh-huh, schnoz- yeah. on them, man? They could get some coke up there. <laughs> and it's also, Stardust the Station, <laughs> man. Station, <Stunt. Shut> <laughs> man. <laughs> Hey, station, I don't know. Are you saying you need a hospital bed? What is he saying? I don't know. Is it t- I just, just, do we need mouth to mouth the station? I don't know what he's trying to ask for. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and also these things are like perpetually wet, so their little cute <laughs> ass cheeks are just shiny and slimy. <laughs> It's
3: disgusting! It is disgusting. I hate station! I hate station, on all
0: forms of station.
2: I want a t-shirt, you know what? We Hate Movies t-shirt that says, I hate station. It's gonna happen, we'll make it.
0: Oh lordy lord. From the perspective of uh, the writers, they began this by, they just went a bit lally during one writing session, and started communicating with each other, this is uh, uh, Chris and Ed, uh, by just going, station. Station, 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 and like it was just an evening of only speaking in one word and seeing how they could emote with just that one word. So this
1: is the forerunner of I am Group. Basically, mm-hmm. yes,
0: it is it's pretty much exactly that. As in, like that, that station can mean anything. That's that their word, and they thought to themselves, maybe we could incorporate that into this. They, in retrospect, Ed Solomon says he wishes that he hadn't. Uh, created a whole character called Station that the last third of this uh, film, the third act, was very heavily contingent on. Because effectively, from a structural point of view, and he was looking at this purely in terms of narrative, uh, they meet Station, and then Station pretty much takes over the story for many, many minutes. And Bill and Ted almost become passengers in their own adventure, as they have to then go to what Station needs, find what Station can do, and then create these... Extra robot doubles to go up against their existing <laughs> robot doubles, who are useful for precisely two punches, and yeah. it, it just to, the, to them it feels like there's not enough payoff to station being there to justify such a weird, gross. Um, Peculiar little creature who did, yeah. we hate movies labelled as disgusting.
1: Station X market. <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: and uh, Alex Winter fought them as well. He said, "I know you guys think this is funny. It's not funny. We shouldn't have station." And yeah. I think he probably <laughs> abides by that to this day because people probably like grab him in the street and go, "I hate that station." But but uh, go for it seriously. If if you'd lo- if um, you know we we have to get. Um, Some love for Station, so... uh, Yeah,
5: for sure. I think it's funny that this movie did Age of Ultron before Age of Ultron. By fixing the robot problem, you build more robots. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Mm-hmm.
5: Pretty pretty great plan there. I merely love Station because it is the most gonzo choice that ever could have been made, aesthetically, storytelling-wise. And I I am such a nut for buck wild things happening in buck wild ways and station is the epitome of just like this buck wild entity that does <laughs> buck wild things for buck wild reasons,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and reasons cannot, only known to station
5: I'm only known to station and just like the fusion moment is so incredibly gonzo I instantly was like, nope, this one's my favorite because of this moment, because it is so wild. That's all. I don't have any other reasons that I love Station. It's just so weird. It did occur
1: to me at that moment that uh, I I asked Alex, does this mean that Station is a crystal gem? (gasps) (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> it seems to have preceded that the idea that they are themselves uh, two parts of it, a whole but then when they are together they can achieve more than just more what than they the can separately parts, yeah. and that seems to philosophically be threaded through the story even if they the writers themselves weren't sure what they were saying well, or doing
1: Ultimately that is the backbone of the theme of Bill and Ted that they are exactly. two parts that are ultimately going to be more than the sum of, of just the two of them.
0: Similarly, mm-hmm. the idea of you assume the greatest mind in our galaxy would be from Earth is a mm-hmm. profound statement on yep. A, assumptions about humanity in general, B, assumptions about heaven. You may may notice that there are Buddhists uh, and um, uh, clearly Jewish people like Einstein, all occupying mm-hmm. the same space in, in this, this blissful afterlife. And it's not exclusionary; it's bringing people in, and it's totally in keeping with what Rufus said at the very beginning about aligning the planets. There is something kind of perfect about Station being from Mars and allying him themselves with Bill and Ted for a common good goal. Mm.
1: Mm-hmm. And also the the fact that did you say um, that they actually states that Station is from the future.
0: No, For I me. said it that uh, if you think about it, that heaven itself could span time without particularly having to cleave to a linear timeline.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah. So everybody who ever lived or will ever live is simultaneously also in the afterlife all at the same moment.
5: Yeah, because mm-hmm. time's a lake. Ha-ha. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, and, My, brand. I mean, My can, brand
5: on display in this
4: one. <laughs> you can kind of see that in the like in the lobby in the entryway on their way into heaven because you see people of different people people of all different fashions and all different dress and it's very clear that they're they're coming from (laughs) their costumes have all been Easterized like they're all pastelized. That that pastel, yes they've (laughs) all been their their costumes have all been pastelized, but you have people from all different locations and apparently all different time periods. You've mm-hmm. got like you've got British trench coat folks, you've got like strong men in like the wrestling underwear. You've got folks that are just in uh like little house on the prairie, uh dresses and all of that. It's it's fifty styles it, it, in
1: swimsuits. Hmm,
4: exactly. It's pretty clear that that all of these people from all across time are converging in the same place and that the idea that the afterlife is without time or it exists outside of time so it doesn't matter when you came from you're all experiencing it the same way.
0: Also, feels like the uh, reference to Butch and Sundance, the early years, um, <laughs> and Smokey and the Bandit uh, is is almost like they're they're folding in on themselves and going, yeah, this is a superfluous and pointless sequel, which probably was ill considered and shouldn't have been done in the first place. <laughs> the lack of faith they had in their own project, when you hear yeah. it on the on, on the commentary, it's it's like no, you've you've achieved something really quite excellent here, just because no one mm-hmm. else can see it doesn't yeah, mean that or it's can't, not. or
5: can't see it yet. Because yeah. I think time is one of the greatest indicators of what works. And I think because there is so much, nearly 30 years at this point between this yeah. sequel and us right now, and I think it is interesting how time will let us look more fondly on things that maybe weren't as well regarded in the moment, you know, because there's always something new to be gleaned. You know, like the fact that we've spent all this time sort of dissecting the meaning of the imagery of bill and ted's hells and like what does that mean for them as (laughs) as characters like that's something that we wouldn't have ever encountered just watching excellent adventure and that's it because excellent adventure the stakes are so incredibly low in that film even though like it seems like they should be incredibly high you know the world hangs in the balance but it's like all based on doing a history report, and this one sort of like takes those stakes of we have to get back to our lives right. because we we now cannot affect the change of the world because we are dead. You know, it, 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 I think it's just really it's really fun, and I think the third film, which we will which we keep saying we'll get to, really brings. <laughs> both of the first two movies to roost, you know, and gives both of those a little bit more meaning than they had before, and I think that really helps when you have the full trilogy to give that cohesion of, like, okay, cool, we we made some missteps when we made one or two or whatever, and we're sort of, like, guiding ourselves into making them work again.
3: And there's also sort of this relationship, and, and it's something that I think applies to Bill and Ted, but also a lot of other Properties out there for our relative age range because everybody on this podcast is sort of of a similar age grouping. Hmm. And so for us, these movies fit into the larger sort of sandbox of childhood mythology, like things we watched that were stories that introduced us to the world or to concepts. And mm-hmm. I think part of the, both the human experience and the human consumption experience is understanding that these things do shape or affect generation. And so when we go back, we're trying to understand, in fact, part of what sat with us. And the adults who created them, they already had their own version of this, so the missteps are more readily available to them than all the little things they weren't thinking about because... They're already so rich in their mythological experience as adults Mm -hmm. who have lived, consumed, written stories, all these things. Mm -hmm. Like we, we still saw it with those fresh eyes for the first time. And that lingers somewhere in the back of our minds, I think, a little bit.
0: I think what uh, you're describing there is uh, being able to go back and reappraise things from the past and look on them with new eyes and especially delving down into uh, elements and uh, subtexts and readings that the writers most definitely did not have in mind when they were writing it, is the rebalancing of the seesaw on things like, wow, this comedy from the 70s just doesn't work anymore. We should leave it in the (laughs) past and Mm -hmm. let let it stay there. Uh, it, it's it's good to be able to balance that by bringing some things out of the past and going. You know, yeah. you know what really works in twenty twenty one, Willow. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes, and that's pretty much the remit of our show when we're when we're at our best is being able to th- to take take things that a lot of people might have forgotten and uh, and do the opposite of we should probably just put this out to pasture, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean like occasionally we'll we'll hit on something that uh, that does feel. Uh, antiquated or indeed in this case has some antiquated elements to it Mm -hmm. but uh, most of the bill and ted series seems to be pushing and pushing forwards not in a desperate Mm -hmm. way but in an encouraging way
1: Mm -hmm. yeah but one of the one of the elements of of getting older and moving forward and progressing is being able to look back on um things that happened in the past that you might not be incredibly proud of for various reasons but dusting off the elements that do still work and and being able to take the parts of that and put it back together in such a way that it works for now
0: and it's important to uh separate that in your head from simple wallowing and nostalgia uh like ready player one
1: Mm. or or something that says, return to me my childhood wholesale because where I am right now is terrifying and I don't want to be here anymore. Which
0: is understandable, (laughs) but not necessarily healthy.
2: Mm.
0: At least not to dwell. It might be, it's fun to be able to take holidays back to then, but Mm.
2: uh,
0: we do need to push forwards as a species.
5: Absolutely. Mm. And I I think Bogus Journey kind of threads that very interesting needle because we have spent some time talking about like, the language issues of of this piece you know mm. like there's there's a slur that is just used willy-nilly but even even in the the appearance of it in this piece it it does not do enough to tip the scales against it to be like well this is these are two irredeemable characters like they are so forward with their empathy and their willingness to befriend literally death you know they respect women they respect each other they they take their role in the in the the propagation of society as seriously as they can but i think it is also interesting that we still have this like terrible word being used by them as a way to show that they are still childish not just childlike childish because i can think about being a a young kid you know and saying words that Weren't words that I should say because it made me feel like a grown up you know, it was me play acting adulthood. And I think that there's a really interesting way you can read the use of this by these characters. While I obviously decry adults writing characters saying these because it's the 90s and homophobia was like all the rage, you know, like everybody everybody was doing that joke, be it the most popular sitcom on television, you know, it, 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 that's that's a societal problem. But at the very least we can take that piece and sort of like recontextualize it in a way that kind of doesn't make it okay. It's obviously not okay, but it is a a jumping off point to have a discussion about like Bill and Ted are children behaving like children and sometimes they speak like children. We do not need to emulate them, but we can empathize with that childishness and say we can do better than bill and ted we can be excellent to each other even more than they are because we can see the times when they are not excellent to others but
3: well, and, and i think the thing that you're hitting on and it's a, a larger idea that i wonder if it has root in these films too is that like to be understanding is often the opposite of being apologist, right? That like finding a context, finding a way in which to discuss this or to navigate the the realities of the word being used is to not go with the blanket. Oh, it was a different time. Yeah. Right. Right. Because we're not trying to wash that away. We're trying to say this has value and this is reflective of the time and does it work with the story. Or if it doesn't, we elevate this thing and say it like Alex, like you were saying, it still has value, but we're not going to sugarcoat over it either. Like looking at where we've been as a species is sometimes the things that moves us forward, mm-hmm. and that means cultivating an understanding of why
0: that is. You guys just keep elevating this thing. Thank you very, very much.
2: <laughs> we chose
0: wisely getting you on. We Thank do, you.
5: We do what we can here. <laughs> totally
2: killed us, you evil metal dickweed. That's right, lesser developed human prototype buses and skills. No! <laughs>
0: Okay, uh, so now we're effectively at the Battle of the Bands. We've got the uh, evil Bill and Ted are killed by the Lego Bill and Ted. And uh, these, these two were played by a, a pair of uh, body-popping break dancers called Shrimp and Taco. I'm and they're, they're so pretty much-
3: bad I've named my cats what I've named them and can't name them Shrimp and Taco. What was I doing? I
5: mean, there's always nicknames. A cat has many names, you know, names esoteric, if, if that musical is any indication of the life of cats. You know, Uh, there was the brand trifecta. I did it here. On here, there's a time and a place for
0: raging against uh, capitalism, and it is on this show.
5: Oh, good. Capitalism (laughs) is really shitty, and we should abolish it like yesterday and
0: (laughs) grow beyond it, much like it's a beautiful square. Yeah, it's effectively this is a rewritten ending repeatedly. They uh, there was going to be various other ways that they were going to do this. What they did in the end was uh, uh, down to uh, hasty uh, rewrites on the part of uh, Ed and Chris. What they ended up going back to was the whole notion that uh, Jesse pointed out in the very first episode, the very first uh, um, point that he made about time being this thing that has always happened. And they, they went back to the trash can of uh, uh, you know being able to set things up for themselves again later. So while uh, it doesn't directly do everything that uh, the original film does. It's resolutions kind of similar in terms of we can set this up in the future
2: mm-hmm.
0: and thinking fourth dimensionally. And I was trying to work out whether going off into the, uh, the future and having 16 months to, to learn to play guitar was a cheat or brilliant or both a brilliant cheat. <laughs> because at the beginning, like I said, if they can play magnificently already – then it doesn't make sense to us that they're having such trouble. um, It doesn't make sense to general audiences that they're having such trouble from getting a record deal. And similarly, Mm -hmm. if they end the movie in a kind of, well, we're still not good, but we will get better, that's just, it's made no progress from the first one. Mm -hmm. And you also can't just wave a magic wand and say, now you're really good at guitars. Mm -hmm. So it almost feels like the only way that they could have gotten better is this way
1: the taking a step outside time and doing 16 months (laughs) Mm -hmm. worth of of training and practice.
2: Hyper-focus.
1: I would also say this, that Denomalous is instrumental to them being able to take that leap forward towards Mm. the future that they're supposed to be in because the fact that he has turned up and hooked up the cameras to the satellite that means that they get beamed into the television sets all around the world. He skynetted himself. Exactly. but Mm. but He was doing it for his own purposes, but it also means that that doorway is then open for them to
0: play
1: and be heard by a good portion of the world all at once.
4: So it's always his fault. Yeah. He
0: was he's railing, he's
5: railing against a society he helped create.
0: That I mean, that's well, honestly what Rufus could say at the very beginning. You know, you you didn't succeed at this. If anything, mm-hmm. whatever you attempt to do will in fact facilitate it. But <laughs> yeah.
4: time has told.
0: Yeah, like, that's it. Absolutely. But you can't tell people like Chuck Denomalous. Anything. Mm. They will decide for themselves what reality is and try to yeah. force reality to match what's in their head.
1: Because they are wow, so it's... desperate for mm-hmm. the sensation of control, whether it is illusory or not, that they will mm-hmm. embrace and enforce something that they know to be an illusion mm-hmm. rather than accept that in this particular situation they don't hold any control. Mm. Yeah, this
5: this, this is really I mean, real Utopia close to 2020.
4: Fake news. Yeah. yeah,
5: Just like the de- like we're witnessing the death of reality as we speak in in 2020. So it's really wacky that this movie that has two like. Weird Muppet creatures Stas doing out. some Cronenberg fusion is just like wow, that really predicted like conservatism, didn't it? Oh man,
0: <laughs> and actually, that's can't
5: believe it.
0: That's that kind of ties in with um, my original experience with Bogus Journey because when this came out, it's notable that uh, rock and roll itself was on the descent. I mean, if you watch uh, Almost Famous. Uh, in 1974, the uh, you know the the, the sort of the, the golden age of rock, they were already lamenting the death of rock and roll, and this was before the MTV age. But this was the era when uh, rock and roll itself, as a medium, as a as a form of music, was effectively about to cede the spotlight to hip hop. Almost like the creators of the blues and jazz and rock music were saying, "Hey, we got a new musical form," and once again, white people tried to take it from them you And the Reaper rap at the end of this film kind of exemplifies that. It was already yeah. sort of done in Dragnet, the one with uh, uh, Tom Hanks and um, Dan Aykroyd, and that's cringe inducing watching these uh, uh, two white guys rap the Miranda rights to a bunch of uh, uh, criminals.
4: You know what you've been doing is a serious
0: crime.
2: And you'll probably be doing some serious time.
4: In case you might be worried about the friends you lose,
2: at least I get to see you on the evening
4: news. It's a new sensation. We go
2: down to the station. You're
4: going to answer some questions
2: and have some refreshments.
4: But um, Ooh. yeah, I, I have not seen that movie, and, wow, yeah, that's a description. Wow. But
0: the the Reaper rap itself, they're kind of trying to surf on that, you know, what's popular. And this seems to be something that uh, was decided at the last minute by the studios. And they had to get all the cast to sign off on allowing their dialogue to be used in this song, which they were then going to release. And while it is sort of like mixing and sampling, it's performed by Steve Vai, the guitarist, who was also present for at least the first one. I don't know about the third one, but... Uh, it's kind of like that in Airheads as well, which is a few years after this. There's this sort of a tension between uh, rock and hip hop as well. And mm-hmm. I remember very specifically the uh, um, the lead singer of Monster Magnet, uh, who's a complete tosser, talking about uh, watching rap <laughs> videos and uh, how you know they're effectively rappers were living the rock and roll life. But as rap stepped up and rock slowly backed off and became kind of obsolete and and uh, was. I suppose it had its its place occupied in the market in the late 90s, early 2000s by new Metal. It kind of made Bill and Ted look irrelevant. So it was sad for many, many years. As I said, the longer, the more years that elapsed between Bogus Journey and the present mm-hmm. and the future, it felt like what Bill and Ted were peddling, this classic rock, and metal sort of with, a, with quite a bit of hair metal thrown in there from the '80s was just antiquated and it yeah. felt like there was no place in the world for Bill and Ted. and while I looked forward to the idea of a third movie, I also dreaded their crushed little faces where they realized the world didn't turn out like they thought it was going to. Mm-hmm. But luckily did- we will talk about that next week, but they picked that idea up and ran with it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Ultimately, there, there's a kind of a. Uh, there always was a bittersweetness about the end of Bill and Ted because uh, Bill and Ted too, because it was like off they go to craft a whole new timeline that we aren't going to be able to experience. Where rock we music. just enjoy stayed. it
5: in the credits. It's fine. Yeah. Don't worry about
0: it. <laughs> we sort of live vicariously through that. But again, with this third film, it just it feels like they their acknowledgement of that. It that the whole thing kind of came full circle. We'll talk about that next week. But um, yeah, the the the, the nature I mean, it's a kiss song and it already feels like something that's a bit dated even for 1991 uh, hence the reaper rap they were kind of like trying to get down with the kids but it does have a magnificence about it as a song and the the fact that god gave rock and roll to you kind of ties in with the theological ideas posited within the film such as they are in terms of it's not even really ideas it's just like what we imagine death to be like is a really good player of games who you should never challenge what our movie presupposes is maybe he's a bit crap and kind of a sore loser as well <laughs> and I do bored think,
1: in, in the sense of being philosophical though i do think they go long on that closing line the um the best place to be is here the best time to be is now
0: nope yeah The best time to be right now is really not now. I I
1: concede that that doesn't fit in this particular (laughs) year of all 2020. Also,
0: Solomon believes that was not earned. He looked at it and he said that was the analogue to be excellent to each other and party on dudes for Mm. this. And he felt like the film itself had not... Uh, gotten behind that as an as a as a philosophy enough for them yeah. to justify saying that at that point.
1: Okay, all right. Well, that's fair enough. I mean, I I I like it. I think it's it's a really good <laughs> takeaway, and it, in the sense that it gives you this, um, it fits with their ethos of. It's not even always make the best of things. It's just that they only seem able to see the. Um, the positive roads out of wherever
0: they are. Yeah. But also, I suppose it is sort of moving forwards in terms of that whole best time to be is now. At the beginning of the movie, they're like, when is it going to be the future? And that should really have been their more clearly marked journey. When is it going to be the future? Mm -hmm. It needs to be, they need to be happy with who they are, what they know Mm -hmm. and what they're doing now and push forwards to continue doing and to make better what they're doing as opposed to, waiting to be told how they became these special little boys
1: yeah but then that that also creates like a sense of tension with um what we were talking about earlier i think it was rachel who was saying that they are um they're almost afraid to grow up yet they Mm -hmm. want it to be the future well if it's going to be the future guys you've you've got to grow
0: up up to be in it yeah 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 hmm did anyone recognise the guy in the tub just slapping the water and being really happy?
2: No. no, It's no.
0: Napoleon!
5: Oh my, oh my gosh! Yep. <laughs> That's hilarious. And obviously
0: the British, my word, couple is headed up mm-hmm. by William Sadler himself. That is in fact his real wife and daughter. Aww. Aww. I do like the fact that they're suggesting that round the world, in a slightly more pronounced but still a little bit Michael Bayish fashion... <laughs> Uh, there you know, the other people are kind of watching this and going, Hey, you know what, rock and roll, and 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 feeling uplifted and unified by this awesome music. 100% right, yeah, yeah. can't wait,
5: can't wait for that idea to come to a head in the next one.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, also, yeah, we we do get little Ted and little Bill, and again, what they do with little Ted and little Bill in the next one, absolutely splendid. We'll talk about that next Love week, it. but uh, it feels like a lot of people involved with this production lost sight of what a satisfying result it was to see Bill and Ted finally really good, as good as we've been told they would be. It yeah. is the mm-hmm. punchline to uh, the joke set up punchline joke set up again of they do get better, and then when? <laughs> when? Now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the music of Eddie Van Halen, the unseen godfather of this series. School of Movies is funded by Patreon, and our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you too. Aaron LeCluze, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler Connor Kennedy Dan Mayer Daniel Selguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman David Sheely Duran Barnett Evan Jankowski Finbar Nicole Frankie Pusey. Greg Downing Jameis Enright Jesse Ferguson Joe Gassiga Joe Crow Joel Robinson Johan Clayson Joseph Gluck Kat Essman Kevin Bailey. Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Lux, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Haskell, Scott Jacob, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosansky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. already heard from jesse about uh his show recorded tomorrow and uh from jonathan last week so uh rachel and scott what is your show that people can find you can find our show
3: which is called the infinity podcast a show that used to be about marvel movies but is now about the intersections between superhero pop culture and pop culture in general and things that we have taken under Umbrella for branding, uh, the movie Cats, yep. Taylor Swift album,
5: Carly Rae Jepsen, every second of every day, She is My Queen.
3: Absolutely. She's
5: My Queen.
3: We will take our tangents as far as the next galaxy, but always bring it back to the earth of whatever we are discussing with our co-host, Patrick H. Willems, who you can find on YouTube. Um, we will be covering in this coming year, 2021, everything from... One division to whatever we feel like because that's what we tend to do uh, on the show. Uh, I, d-
5: uh, you know, I'm gonna say it right here, right now. First yeah. time anyone's gonna hear this. We're definitely gonna talk about the Fast and Furious franchise. It's gonna happen.
3: Thank God Rachel's I've, been watching the
0: movies.
5: I've watched seven of eight of them. So excellent. Get ready.
0: There's yes. nine of them. There's yes. nine of them now. But
5: the ninth one isn't out yet.
0: No. Okay. Uh, so are well, we, we excluding Hobbs, and, and, Hobbs and, Shaw? and Shaw? I know Vin Diesel does. I don't.
3: I, I do th- I think Hobbs and Shaw is a Fast and Furious joint and have very specific reasons for believing why. Mm.
4: But mm. yes, it feels it's like Satan Fast and the Furious seven and a half to me. I get that. <laughs> I get that. I I am obsessed with the
3: choices of disguises in Hobbs and Shaw to degrees that think... my words cannot express. Yeah, no, we're gonna we'll go deep on the disguises, and that's the right. kind of thing we would do on this podcast, which you can check out on all major platforms. We're everywhere
5: yes and I have a second podcast where I discuss uh, movies and television uh, with a guest every week called Screen Snark so uh, that's real it's real cash we don't get too into the dissection of the popular culture with them we mostly just go I watched this thing it was fun you could watch it too or don't it's fine
3: yeah and actually as of next week
4: I will be able to announce my second podcast so (laughs) I'm just going to tease that here at the end of this too because why not So that is this isn't going to air until January. So if you want to announce that. Yeah, if you you want to do that. Yeah, go for it.
3: Oh, sure. Great. I actually now have a second podcast called And the Best Picture Is, where we take (gasps) one new movie release a week and arbitrarily decide it's won the Oscar for Best Picture of 2021. Uh, In doing so, we're going to give movies Oscar buzz. We're going to try to knock around the idea of what Prestige Canon is. And it looks like our first three movies are Shadow in the Cloud, Pieces of a Woman and Bloody Hell. So, get ready to check that out. Um, I just watched Shadow in the Cloud today. Folks, you're in for a ride. Uh, Look forward to going (laughs) in on that one for an hour. My
0: God. My God. Okay. (laughs) So, to remind you of those names again, folks, we've got The Infinity Podcast with Patrick H. Willems as a co-host. The Patrick H. Willems. Cool. Screen Snark and The Best Picture is... And we've got recorded tomorrow. Yes. So mm-hmm. jump on your uh, uh, podcatcher and just start clicking, smash that subscribe button four smash more it, times.
1: Smash it, baby!
0: Smash it. thank you so so much for coming on this particular episode, oh, Jesse, oh, Rachel, and Scott especially. All you 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 two newcomers for for braving this strange new system, and uh, you handled yourself with great aplomb. Thank, thank you. you.
5: Thank you so much for for selecting us to talk about these really great, excellent movies. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It was a most audacious debut.
5: (laughs) Most not heinous.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It was non, 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 non heinous. (laughs) 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 Okay, so we will be back next week for the last song of Bill and Ted. Until then, I've been Alex S. Preston, Esquire.
1: And I've been Sharon Theodore Logan
0: be excellent to to each each other, and party on, dudes.
2: We've been to the past. We've been to the future. We've been all around the afterlife. And you know, Ted, the best place to be is here. The best time to be is now. Now all we can say is: yeah, let's roll)